1937, journalist Alison Settle said that fashion is the expression of the world we live in, a picture of what is going on inside our minds as well as outside in historic fact. Little did she know, only two years later, this statement would never be more true. Hello, hello, I'm Belle and welcome back to Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast all about the importance of the clothes we wear. So to kick off our first proper episode, very exciting, I want to delve into that well-loved topic, fashion on the ration. Now, I just want to add in a little something as to why I'm focusing on this topic right now. As I'm recording this, we've just lost Vera Lynn, very sadly, and she really was a British icon. But also during a pandemic, I think there are wartime experiences that we can really empathise with, mostly that sense of uncertainty. So let's just talk about human beings for a little bit and our ability to adapt to times of change. 70 years ago, today, we all got dressed and we all use fashion as expression. We're human and we adapt. Okay, so this area is really a personal interest of mine and has been for quite a few years. I think living in the UK, it's quite hard not to feel somewhat connected to World War II, especially in London, where the aftermath of it is literally visible everywhere due to modern houses being erected on certain streets after bombings. But as much as I'm interested in the topic at a broader level, it's equally a topic that is hugely politically relevant in terms of its fashion history. Essentially, Fashion on the Ration tells us about how and when fashion was dictated by world events within that this is a fascinating area of study when it comes to fashion trends and the evolution of style it's the idea of forced change and forced choices and not only that but how individuals manage to cut through that and kind of forge their own sense of identity despite the world events that were happening around them Now, as a disclaimer, I'm going to focus on women and children's fashion, primarily in the UK, as this is where most of my knowledge lies. And when I talk about ration fashion, I mean times between 1939 and maybe 1946. I know rationing was a thing in the UK even into the 50s, lasting until I think it was 1953 for some. But when I say ration fashion or fashion on the ration, those are the dates that I mean. Fashion evolution during the war was more than people just having less fabric or less choice in the shops. It's a story of women evolving their style and their style choices based on a huge range of socio-political factors. So to sum up the ideas I want to talk about here, this isn't just about fashion in terms of talking about clothes, but how times of conflict can be reflected at an individual level by clothes and by beauty. And basically, that's what I want to talk about. Now, to start, I just want to say I think 40s fashion is so beautiful and there are so many aspects to it that I adapt in my own dress from, you know, the land girl jumpers and corduroy trousers to the ultra glam LA hair flowers and pencil skirts look. But I fully understand that this is me viewing this era in the West from a very privileged perspective of rose-tinted glasses, so to speak. We must remember the difference between what was called streetwear and high fashion and how the two coincided. And they were both massively dictated by these political changes. But it's definitely an era that is easy to glamorise because the photos we see are and can be so beautiful. 
but I really want to focus here on what the individuals were experiencing and how this 40s rationing experience is something that happened at some level around the world, particularly in Europe, but it was definitely more prevalent for individuals in the UK for a multitude of reasons. It's interesting to think about how these experiences compare to how we envision the 40s in general and how, like I said, 40s fashion is so easily glamorised. It's beautiful, yes, but it was also very difficult for many, I'm sure. And whilst it's a topic that has been talked about so many times before, as most of you, I'm sure, know, I can't not talk about it on a fashion history podcast. Now, I'll be using a lot of advertisements and quotes to make my point. And I think adverts, particularly for the 40s, can be a really good way of introducing yourself to fashion on the ration if you're new to the topic, for example. There's a host of advertisements that give some sort of insight into how individuals are experienced fashioning in the war. I also got a lot of help from information from the Imperial War Museum website and their published books. British Parfait movies can be amazing and a book by Jane Dorner called Fashion in the 40s and 50s. It's such a simple book but it's such a godsend because it just clearly states and shows really clear images of the sort of things that we're going to be talking about. So... Let's begin with the early years of the war. I really think, and, you know, I wasn't there, but I can make an educated guess that the future austerity of the war was just completely unprecedented. But also, this kind of uncertainty completely sums up the scrabble that's 40s fashion. People had to make do, which is where make do and mend came in. Rationing obviously had an effect and civilians really did not expect what was to come for their future. Much like the Great War, people thought, or at least were told, that it would be over by Christmas. No one thought something as devastating could happen again, but unfortunately they were wrong. To kind of make this point, I want to use a really interesting quote from a 1940 New Year edition of Vogue magazine. It states that we put our faith in fashion. In this new year of war, we take this stand and will maintain it against all comers. That fashion is no service frivolity, but a profound instinct. That its pulse beats fast or slow in time with the march of events, but beats with imperishable vitality. As long as there is taste and coquetry desire to change and love a self-expression, there will be fashion. Wow, just what a statement and what a statement to sum up the early years of the war and directly after the 30s, which was quite a glamorous era, really, when you look back at a lot of photos and adverts from the time. It's an optimistic stance, to say the least, and it was quite brave, I think, but really fascinating now to read with hindsight. However, unfortunately, fashion development was pretty halted during the war. And by fashion development, I mean in terms of dramatic change. It really wasn't until the war was over for fashion to make any major leaps and bounds or visible changes. Compare the 40s with the 50s in England, for example. The iconic images are really quite similar for the day-to-day person. But then compare that to the difference between the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. The changes were quite major in comparison. Now, of course, it was a slow progress and one that quotes like this make seem even slower. 
when you envision 40s London, for example, for me, the overwhelming image I get is of drabness. Women patching hand-knitted jumpers, make-do and mending, repurposing clothes that hand-me-downs from the 30s, and rolling their unwashed curls into headscarves. It was a time of restraint in clothing, I think. Yes, arguably the 40s has a very iconic silhouette, but really it's quite a simple one when you compare it to the overwhelmingly iconic image of the flapper from the era before. Now there's real beauty to be found in this simplicity, I would argue, but I can see how women at the time perhaps didn't. In many ways, the silhouette of the era reflects the severity of the time looking back now. And many might have seen that simplicity is quite plain and depressing. It's an image of padded shoulders and straight-lined skirts, box-shaped jackets and heeled brogues. There's a real severity to it. It's squared off and boxy. Frivolity be damned, basically. And of course, there was some leeway between individual and individual, of course, like any era. But for me, the image of the sort of flouncy 40s summer dress is a lot less iconic than the land girl or the homemaker in her smock. I think there was also a sense of practicality to wartime fashion that started probably in 1940 and carried on all throughout the war. And maybe this is where the severity of the silhouette comes in because, you know, like I said, women had to make do and mend. They had to be practical. They had to make clothes that would suffice for the blitz. I'm looking now at an advert from a shop called Marshall and Seagrove in London from 1945 that's all about making Christmas presents. It shows an image of a beautiful woman and her very young family advertising how to, as the title clearly says, be practical at Christmas time. If that doesn't sum it up, I don't know what does. She's also wearing the typical 40s style with a sharp jacket and a knee-length skirt as well as a pair of brown-heeled brogues. And this advert clearly states that they're going to be using old stock of children's cardigans and how to crochet berets. Simple, accessible and basic. I mean, adorable in my opinion. I think the kids look super cute, but not the sort of fun, glitzy glamour that you associate with Christmas. If even Christmas time had to be practical and austere and make use of old stock, then that just sums up this idea of simplicity and austerity more than anything could, I think. Now, I think this brings us nicely into the idea of make do and mend and fashion on the ration. Fashion on the ration is a very all-encompassing statement. But basically, in the UK, clothes were rationed alongside food and other similar necessities like soap. You were given coupons for new clothes and shoes and often families, women of course, if the men in their life were conscripted, had to make clothes from whatever they could find. They had to darn socks to fix holes and cover old clothes with patches. Families were told by the famous advert advertising the government's make do and mend scheme that they had to make do with what they had and mend. It's very simple really. But also completely sums up this idea of austerity clearly no new clothes were being made and if they were they were being made for probably special occasions or you know events and I'm sure the day-to-day person living on a you know a middle class or lower class wage wouldn't have had access to these new clothes they most likely would have been saved for the white upper class Now, the utility scheme was advertised to women in 1943 to make sure clothing was produced in line with restrictions. The sharp, durable woman's suit and the collared shirt are examples. They're very sharp, simple and toned down and use sort of as little fabric as is possible. 
But I mean, I own a host of these items myself and I can really atone for their quality, which is something I think you wouldn't expect. They were made to last, though. They were made to be worn in the blitz. And despite the limits, this quality seemed to have prevailed. However, the shape and style of these clothes completely follow on from this sense of austerity and harshness, like I said. And it's interesting to kind of think that the silhouette that we know today was really determined by this austerity and was determined by a lack of fabric, simply put. But that 1940s silhouette has become so iconic and it was just determined by government schemes and socio-political events. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And for children too, not just women, the image of the small dress, ankle socks and buckled shoes is quite a strong one. Google it if you don't really know of the image I mean. But again, it was one merely born out of a lack of choice. Most likely the dresses were three sizes too small due to being family hand-me-downs or even left over from the 30s. Pinafores were also popular and completely sum up this silhouette. A girl could wear the same dress for weeks on end and merely swap out her covering pinafore. There's an advert I found from 1945 that plainly states, For those who are short on coupons and whose children have grown out of last year's frock, we present the new old idea of pinafores. To cover up a shabby one or to make use of your past best dress, it tells us how the pinafore can be made from old scarves. And that idea to me completely sums up how confusing this austerity was. It talks about scrapping tablecloths for pinafores and cutting up old skirts. I'm sure many people, you know, felt horrible about that idea. These old tablecloths might have been family heirlooms. They might have been hand-me-downs from their parents or their grandparents. But, you know, what could you do in this time? You had to make do with what you had. And the fact that making clothes from a tablecloth was even an option seems completely bizarre to us. But like I said, we're looking at these times from very privileged positions. And if that was all you had, that was all you had. Your children needed clothes. Simple. I'm sure there wasn't really much else to discuss. And this advert I mentioned was from Harper's Bazaar, which was and still is a fashion magazine, a high fashion magazine at that. If that doesn't show us how make do and men just saturated all areas of fashion, I don't know what does. The fact that a high fashion magazine is telling people to make clothes from tablecloths or old scarves is completely bizarre to us and also completely fascinating. Now, to follow on from that, and to follow on from my point about Christmas time being seen as quite a glitzy, glamorous time, I've got an image of an advert in front of me advertising wedding dresses for young girls. Not actual wedding dresses, obviously, but what they could wear to the weddings. Now, the main tagline states that children's clothes can be made out of odds and ends, such as cotton sheets, discarded old dresses, tablecloths again, or blackout curtains. Even for weddings, it seems like people had to make do. A time where now people spend their life savings on a wedding to make a memorable event for them. Using cotton sheets to make a dress for someone's wedding would just be completely out of the question, I think. I think people would think that you'd gone a little bit mad. I mean, I actually quite like that idea. I'm all for recycling, you know, and I think what wasn't beautiful can be made beautiful. But a lot of people don't really subscribe to that idea. And for their wedding, they want all new. They want beauty. They want glamour. And that's completely valid. But yeah, anyway, I just think that's 
so interesting and completely sums up the idea of make, do and mend, rationing. Even a wedding couldn't be made beautiful. Although I suppose saying that this wedding during the 40s would be memorable in its own right, but just maybe for slightly different reasons. (laughs) But speaking of material and this idea of dressing for best, it's also interesting to think about what was being advertised and what was available to the wealthier ladies of the time. People, you know, who weren't sort of normal civilians that might not have been living the same experience of the war than other women. They might have still been having to keep their upper class lifestyles, you know, tea parties and events. I've got an advert um, from a shop on Oxford Street, which tells debutantes in the summer how they can wear rayon as it looks like linen. Women of the upper upper class were also being advertised jumper suits and jackets for summer because the material for glamorous summer dresses was presumably inaccessible. These were called inexpensive gowns and it seems the choices women were making was determined by cost and availability, so much so that dressing for best was difficult even for a certain class of women, debutantes for example. It's almost like the world and maybe their world didn't stop they were still had the same expectations of them socially but the availability that they had to present themselves in a certain way was lowered and that must have been strange for women who their whole lifetime has maybe had everything they wanted and haven't had to make do and mend in the way that I'm sure a lot of women did before the war even it seems that being and staying beautiful and having the choices that you previously had were difficult and your choices and your availability was, as I said, determined by world events. Now, this idea actually brings us nicely onto my next point, uniforms as fashion. Now, some of the most iconic images of the style from the 40s is the woman in uniform. Whilst I'm sure the upper class was still living a certain lifestyle, the majority of the civilian women... I use that term quite loosely, but you know what I mean when I say it, were working. They were working at home. They were working on the streets. They were working in factories. Their sort of leisurely lifestyle, if they'd had it, was more or less eradicated. A very iconic image, for me at least, from the UK during the war is the female air raid warden. The woman in her tweed style, sort of two-piece suit, enamel helmet and with gas mask and a torch. So much so that the utility style has become a fashion in and of itself, as I mentioned earlier. But hundreds of women held a massive variety of utility jobs during the 40s. The most notable being the Women's Royal Naval Service and the ATS or Air Transport Auxiliary. Factory jobs were also an important role held by many women and there were also roles such as land girls and home front night wardens. They were some important roles during the war and the fashion choices that women made were very much dictated by the job roles they held. And I definitely think it can be argued that the images and the clothes that these women are wearing, we associate so strongly with the war. Like I said, the image of the air raid warden on the street is so prevalent and it's an image that we see quite often in advertisements and books and films. Wardens were actually, I found written somewhere, called guardians of the air raid. As I suppose during the blackout, these women would have held a lot of power. Their job was very important. And maybe a sort of low-level power that maybe initially wouldn't be assumed as most important. But I wonder how many lives they saved just from making people, you know, take cover in a shelter. And I think this important is reflected 
because they are the focus in a lot of newspaper cartoons and articles. And that might be how the images become so iconic and so noticeable in these images, but also because people probably saw them a lot and trusted these people. But as I said, this isn't the only iconic image that we have of working women of this era. Women held a huge variety of jobs. But the fashion isn't always the thing that we think first about these roles. For example, the Women's Volunteer Service, who organised the evacuation of city children, were known as the Women in Green, as it was the only material left for their uniforms for military fabric. Yet, for me at least, this image of the Woman in Green isn't something that I really was particularly aware of or hold very highly in my iconic imagery of the 40s, yet the air raid warden is definitely something that I would notice sort of off the bat. But I'm also sure these women at the time didn't think that their looks would become iconic. I'm doing um, air bubbles, you can't see. (laughs) And I'm also sure they didn't see these clothing choices as styles. And it's interesting to see how, how iconic they've become even as fashion choices that are quite emulated today. People, you know, wear them for reenactments or even just in their day-to-day life. This was clothing as necessity. It was a uniform. I'm sure if you have a job where you have to wear a uniform, you probably hate it. You probably hate the lack of individuality it gives you. And I'm sure a lot of women at the time felt that way. I mean, hate might be a strong word, but you know the point I'm trying to make. And to be honest, I'm definitely guilty of glamorising this look myself. I see the images and I think wow, you know, that's so iconic. It's so 40s. I completely know what they're wearing and I'd love to have or own one of these outfits. And it's very easy to do. It's very easy to distance ourselves from these clothes as being worn by real people and being experienced by real people. And that people probably had opinions on them or definitely had opinions on them. The land girl style, for example, is definitely a style I adapt in my daily life. It's also obviously an evolution from the feminine style of maybe the 30s to more masculine styles, such as trousers. And I think it's easy to forget that what land girls were wearing was a uniform in its own right. And a lot of identity in this uniform was stripped away from a lot of young girls and women, despite how iconic it is now to us in the present day day. And these uniforms also sum up the idea of necessity over beauty, which I think saturated a lot of the clothes worn by women in this era and in a lot of the uniforms that they were being given. The image of the factory worker in her hair turban and utility jumpsuit is very strong and offered a silhouette previously unseen on women, but it also isn't one that's very typically beautiful. It's a lot less feminine in the traditional sense and a lot more masculine in the traditional sense, much like the land girl outfit. It's trousers, it's not skirts, it's long sleeves. Now, I'm sure a lot of women were very pleased for the freedom of these new clothes. I think it can't be argued that that isn't the case. But I must also be assumed that many weren't. There's an element, like I said, of personality and individuality removed from these utility styles. The siren suit being a clear example of this. It's a uniform at the end of the day. Although saying that, even in a time of hardship, we're still human and so are these women. And there's evidence to suggest that women attempted to make these suits, as an example, attractive in their own way. There's examples of women that stitch different fabrics into the undersides of the suits or tying scarves around their necks to make pussy bows or using luminous buttons which were slightly pearlized but quite beautiful but ultimately designed for use in blackouts when walking in the dark. 
So despite these rules and restrictions, women were still trying and still trying to be beautiful and have that individuality. And fashion was still something that retained some identity. There was clearly an attempt at beautifying as a rebuttal to the limits they had. And women were skillful and imaginative, yet they were halted by certain limits. And the regulatory uniform is an example of this. They tried to make what they could out of the means they were given. And if it was a utility suit that they were given, they were going to make the best of it. And I love that. (laughs) But saying this, many teen girls were sent away to work on farms as land girls. And I'm sure they were stripped away of a lot of their personal expression when it was necessary to wear these uniforms. And at a time of your life when you're sort of desperate to find out who you are and what you like. And I wonder how these girls felt about it because I can't imagine that they were particularly enthused at having to wear knitted jumpers and corduroy trousers. I'm sure they completely understood why they had to, but that doesn't mean that they liked it. (laughs) And I think often these girls get sort of a little bit swept under the rug, so to speak. I think the land girl is an iconic image and it is an image of fashion that many people like to adapt and think is beautiful in its own right. But we need to remember that it was teenagers, it was 17, 18 year old, 19 year old girls that were working these jobs and were forced to wear these uniforms. And it also has to be remembered that some of the sort of iconic images we see are ultimately recruitment posters showing the best of a role such as a land girl. It was propaganda at the end of the day in a way to get more women to subscribe to this job. A lot of the photos were planned, they were staged, and they don't really project a lot of truth. I can't imagine there was much time for posed photos of women with perfectly set hair and expensive corduroys when actual farm war work was taking place. So I'm sure a lot of these young teen girls got duped into thinking that they were starting this glamorous job. And when they started it, it was completely not what they expected. I found a letter sent to the Daily Mail by a woman who was a land girl. And she shares this sentiment. She says that we did not have designer shirts, but awful Airtex fawn shirts and green pullovers. We did not work in cords. They were for best wear. We wore slacks and smocks in a heavy grey black material. We had hobnail boots which the locals scraped for us when we were picking up rotted potatoes because we could hardly put one foot in front of the other for the depth of mud. Wellies, yes, we were hard done by, never getting credit for, for what we did. Clearly then she was sort of making some reference to the images that she'd been shown and advertised to versus what actually she experienced when she was on the job. Like she said, cords were for best wear, but I'm sure the images on the posters that she was advertised to were women wearing expensive cords. Yet that idea as uniform as a fashion choice and the land girl one in particular has become so iconic and glamorized in many ways. Also in a book called Corsets to Camouflage by Kate Addy, which I think is an Imperial War Museum book. She makes a point that the Auxiliary Territory Service, the ATS, which was apparently the largest group of working women, suffered a lack of glamour. Yet, the ATS poster is a very famous one, and I'm sure you've all seen it. It's the side profile of that beautiful blonde woman on a dark green background. Google ATS wartime poster if you don't know the one I mean, but it's extremely glamorous. It almost looks like a Hollywood poster. Yet, it seems this was not the reality of the uniform that many women had assumed they would be wearing when they signed up for the ATS. The uniform apparently included khaki knit knickers, ew, men's pyjamas, starched collars, only two utility suits and a corset. 
the course it has me, to be honest. How can a woman on the outside be so unglamorous and wear men's clothes, have all that personality stripped, yet still be forced to wear a corset, which is the ultimate feminized piece of fashion? That's crazy to me. But it might also explain why this iconic image is so recognizable. It's the juxtaposition of the unglamorous job with an ultra-feminine figure, yet, as I said, they suffered from a lack of glamour and their actual uniforms were dire and was not the image that they were advertised to when they decided to sign up. So despite uniform as fashion being an image we instantly recognise, I think it's safe to say a lot of women at the time did not feel the freedom that we associate with this and did not see it as a glamorous, iconic fashion choice that is easy to presume today. Now, moving on from this idea of uniform as fashion, I think it's also interesting to talk about the use of makeup and its availability and the idea of staying traditionally feminine and beautiful in this time period. In the last months of the Second World War, Yardley, for example, ran an advertisement that read, To work for victory is not to say goodbye to charm, for good looks and good morale are the closest of allies. So clearly then there was an expectation on women to stay traditionally beautiful and still subscribe to makeup and beauty regimes as before the war. But also most women likely did want to retain their traditional beauty. Turbans, for example, were made as beautiful as possible with glamorous scarves or hair flowers. Clearly attempts were made. However, I read in The Guardian that clothing had been rationed since 1941 and soap since 1942, while cosmetics were impossible to find. Their manufacturers having exchanged the production of lipstick, powder and paint for army foot powder and anti-gas ointments. Makeup is cherished, a last desperately defended luxury, said Vogue in 1942, a statement that was undoubtedly true, but also rather glossed over the fact that some of its readers were now in the business of darkening their eyelashes with boot polish, for example, and had absolutely no access to makeup or beauty, let alone the basics of skincare. Therefore, the painful gap between what women wanted and what they had to put up with in wartime Britain was extremely wide, clearly. Women even made underwear in the classic sort of feminine style out of discarded maps and parachutes and made makeup with household objects that they had access to. In classic make-do-and-mend fashion, I suppose, I guess this idea of making do with what you had didn't just subscribe to clothing and fashion, but also makeup and beauty and underwear. Like I said in my very first uh, podcast, fashion doesn't always just mean clothes it's a very overarching topic that does encompass hair and beauty and makeup as well and this bid and desperation to stay close to a traditional idea of femininity is interesting to note but also shows the deafness with which many women trudged this time period same article that i was using from the garden earlier explains that this was done with hope humor and grace by many women which i think is quite a lovely sentiment really now this article that i mentioned is focusing on a past exhibition at the imperial war museum called fashion on the ration so google it if you want to find any of the information that i just stated um it seems i was never able to go to this exhibition i can't believe i missed out i live in london but you know whatever that's a disappointment for another day but it details some of the articles of clothing that this exhibition held and it really sums up this point they are as follows a collection of jewelry made from aircraft parts a dressing gown stitched from the silk escape maps used by airmen a gas mask holder cunningly disguised as a leather handbag 
a collection of luminous buttons, like I said earlier, and brooches to be worn during the blackout. Best of all, there is an appearance by what at first glance looks like a onesie, but is in fact a siren suit, an outfit marketed at being just the thing to pull on in a hurry should you have to make a sudden dash to your air raid shelter in the dead of night. Clearly then, there's an idea of making the ugly beautiful despite these restraints. And just this small list of articles of clothing sums this up and clearly evidences it. Now, these outfits and accessories may have been the minority but clearly they existed in some way or another and were made and worn by some individuals. I suppose to keep a sense of human identity and normality as much as possible and studying fashion in the 40s and beauty in the 40s then is important and you have to admit it reflects changing times but also it gives insights into how people were and the choices that they made and this desperation of women to stay beautiful whether that be making their own makeup making their own underwear or disguising a gas mask as a beautiful leather handbag but also as I mentioned earlier the advice was for women to carry on staying beautiful and to upkeep a sense of morale and normality and this is where the term beauty is duty comes in which was quite widely used at the time For example, apparently women who worked in factories to create netting for camouflage were entitled to government supplies of hand cream. Yet how were women supposed to achieve this beauty when there was a lack of available cosmetics? As I mentioned, yes, certain women were entitled to government supplies, but this was a minority. Did all women even want to keep up the standard of beauty in classic terms whilst they were at work? I mean, it's hard to know not living through the era, but evidence suggests that they probably did. Perhaps it made them feel more human with a little mascara and blush, whether it was made at home or whether it was bought in the shop. In the Imperial War Museum book, Fashion on the Ration, it explains that women resorted to ancient ways of preserving beauty from around the world in a bit of desperation, I suppose, and lack of available cosmetics. Apparently, women at one time were advised to wear gloves in bed twice a week with a walnut balled in each hand to preserve soft skin, which is an ancient Chinese tradition. However, on the one hand, you can see why upkeeping this sense of skin care and beauty made sense. With haute couture fashion and glamorous options unavailable, it makes sense that women wanted to keep a sense of identity, or were told to at least, with what means they had. If a skin cream, boot polish mascara and a silk scarf is all you had, you'd milk it for what it's worth. I would at least. Clearly then, I think this notion of identity, which I know I've mentioned a lot on this podcast, is a really strong one for the 40s, stronger than I really thought before I started doing the research for this episode. Moving on from this, we can't talk about 40s beauty and not talk about hair. Hair at the time is so iconic and such an iconic prevailing images. Vintage hairstyles are really what make a look obviously vintage and some of the most iconic styles came out of this era. Again, I adopt a lot of them for myself in my own dress just because there's so much creativity to it. The fashion for hair was also very short and usually chemically permed. You see very little images of women in the 40s with straight or not tightly curled hair, partly because it was required by many factories that hair was above shoulder length for obvious reasons. But obviously lack of hair care and lack of available cosmetics made these styles popular for the same reason. Straight hair requires a lot of upkeep, 
Whereas curly hair is easy to keep, it requires little styling and can be easily scrunched into protective styles. Straight hair needs to be silky, it needs to be washed. It's very hard to get away with a straight hair look with unwashed hair, for example. Now, personally, I just prefer the look of very curled hair in 1940s styles particularly. Victory rolls and page boy styles are very iconic. Google these images if you can't visualise them straight away. But it makes sense as to why they became the popular styles and why they were required for women. Again, it sums up this interesting combination and tie-up between what women wanted to do, the choices they made, and what they were told to do. The two sort of coincide quite well, and it's interesting to think about that. It's sort of hard to know in the present day, and just from advertisements, what were styles that became popular organically and through choice and which were styles that women were merely told to wear for safety reasons. Milkmaid plaits, for example, became a way to maintain some glamour but to protect the hair if it wasn't staying curled and to protect the hair in factories and other work where there's lots of chemicals. This hairstyle specifically might sum up this idea of choice versus requirement and I think that's sort of interesting to think about. However, I did read that many women chose certain hairstyles, not because they were required, but also because they were influenced by Hollywood starlets, which you sort of forget about as being an influence in the war. In 1943, the starlet Veronica Lake made popular the peekaboo style, which was a longer, softer and more loosely curled style. And it seems that this style was widely copied by women throughout the West and particularly in Britain, probably because it represented a sort of freedom for these women would be my guess. And it wasn't a style that they were told that they had to wear. It was a style that they thought was beautiful and wanted to adopt for themselves. It's that sense of identity prevailing. But I think it definitely affected the safety of working women in Britain and probably the US. There is an advertisement of Veronica Lake from... I think it's the late 40s, of her hair fakely getting pulled into machinery in a bid to save America to illustrate what could happen to working women if they adopted this style upon the job. She then had to adopt and popularise new styles due to her influence just to stop women from wearing this hairstyle at work and getting it caught in the various machinery that they might have been working with. But this clearly shows that women were wishing to maintain a sense of glamour and identity despite the regulations, for better or for worse. So whilst beauty as duty was a slogan that seems quite sexist and completely out of touch for the time period, many women may have been happy to subscribe to this and may have even been subscribing to it without it being a government slogan. It's difficult to know, really. I know there are a lot of advertisements similar to the Veronica Lake one that were popular and released a lot at the time to make sure women were keeping their hair to required standards. Though I will admit there's a weird sense of conflict here. How can you tell a woman that her beauty is her duty and to stay beautiful, but also tell them that staying beautiful is dangerous and that to stick to requirements and do what they're told? I might be completely misconstruing the idea here and maybe my research has told me something that isn't true. But no wonder many women were unsure what to do and how to present themselves, likely putting them more at risk. 
And the influence of America in the mid-40s, I'm sure, didn't help, as the seemingly glamorous idols of Hollywood and propaganda images from the US conflicted with what the British were being told and the make-do-and-men posters they saw. In the Imperial War Museum book, Fashion on the Russian, that I mentioned earlier, they quote a story from one of these adverts about a young woman working in a factory in Corydon. Now, a woman named Kath Bliss tells a story of her friend and co-worker who, in 1942, was something called a U-turner. Apparently, after going behind one of the lathes, got her hair entangled with a revolving rod of metal and it took off the greater part of her hair on one side. Yet they say they were not very surprised there was an accident as Rachel had obstinately refused to tie her hair up in a scarf and only wore a stupid little shaleen fishnet, which was no protection at all, which caused the regulation to fall on all of the machine operators as the decree had gone forth that we were all to wear the hateful khaki convict caps with a peak. Clearly then, women still wanted to make statements, such as this woman Rachel, and wanted to feel a sense of identity in the workplace and present themselves the way they choose. Sense of self or out, I suppose. Not entirely different to today, where people order medical masks during COVID and the shapes or patterns that tie into our identity and sense of self. But nevertheless, there's clearly evidence of women not subscribing to the regulations and it falling on deaf ears and this being a danger to them. But I can see how at the time, despite these regulations and probably knowing the risks, if you were a young woman forging your sense of identity, you wanted to stay beautiful and you wanted to feel like yourself. And I think that's just human nature and was probably never more so relevant in the war when all these restrictions were in place. Now, to round off, I think it's clear, to me anyway, how and why the 40s has become such an iconic era of fashion and why so many want to emulate it today. It's safe to say, at the time, I'm sure it wasn't seen that way and it's very easy to glamorise the fashion of this era because how iconic it is. But it's hard to deny the beauty and quality of the fashion of this time. There's something to it, I can't really describe it, a sense of personality and life that comes along with these clothes, especially when you own them, wear them yourself. I suppose that's it though, isn't it? There was no fast fashion, no pretty little thing or Primark. Women were forced in a way to give life to their clothes, perhaps without knowing, and make clothing and beauty choices that are so different to what we experience today. No two items, no two images are the same. These dresses and these clothes were made by people worn with probably a sense of pride at what they've made, whether it be a homemade summer dress, a utility suit or a uniform. So, as Vera Lynn famously said, we'll meet again, hopefully on a sunnier day. Goodbye for now, everybody, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It's our first proper episode, so please be a little bit forgiving. If there's anything that I didn't focus on in this topic that you're really interested in, just let me know. My Instagram is at Silhouettes Podcast, and I'll be happy to hear your feedback. There's obviously a lot more in 40s fashion that I could delve into. It was a huge period of time that elapsed and there's so much to it. But I just wanted to talk about this sense of identity that comes with 40s fashion and why, to us, it might be seen as so iconic, which I hope I've done. (laughs) So on that note, please make sure to tune in next time for more fashion exploration. Bye for now.